or we have a we have a white Sunday. I don't know if we're going to get a white Christmas, but we're moving towards Christmas, and in the lead up to it, I thought it would be good to have a break in our regular series of messages in John, and uh, to look at some passages, or at least a, a section of the book of Isaiah, that's peculiarly filled with messianic notes, uh, uh, messianic words of hope and of prophecy, that often is used in the New Testament with respect to Jesus, and is often celebrated in things like uh, Handel's Messiah. I was trying to think, just what portion of the scriptures has the most uh, verses in Handel's Messiah? And uh, so I looked through the libretto, um, you know, the words that are used in the, in the musical piece, and Isaiah definitely is the preeminent book. I guess Psalms comes next, and... Uh, but uh, the book of Isaiah is, um, is filled, particularly the latter part of Isaiah. I was surprised. I thought maybe this section might have most of the messianic references. But for instance, uh, chapter 7 and verse 14, this speaks of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. What Handel does, he takes that from Matthew's gospel. He doesn't actually take it from the account in Isaiah. But yet in chapter 9, there's a number of places where in Handel's Messiah we find uh, references uh, such as the people saw the great light coming from Galilee, Galilee of the nations, and of course, unto us a, ch- son, a, ch- a son is born, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I know last year, I did look with you at chapter 9. We did look at the section that does speak of the child that's born, the son that's given, and the names that he's called. And so I'm not going to so much focus upon those portions, although I will address them in part. But I want to particularly focus upon chapter 7 and then chapter 11. That also contains clear messianic references. And really, in a sense, chapter 7 to chapter 12 are a unit of thought. They really need to be seen together. And really to understand uh, the things you find in chapter 7, you've got to read it in the light of the things that follow. What you have in this section of scripture is something of an accumulation of thoughts and ideas that begin to pick up steam. And so when you come in chapter 7 and the things that you scratch your head about, just continue to read and just see the way in which the picture begins to open up. For instance, you read about a child that's born, uh, conceived of a virgin, one that's called Emmanuel, and you wonder who in the world can, it can be spoke, speaking about. Now, of course, we cheat, we go to the New Testament, we see Matthew says it's referring to Jesus. But if you leave Matthew's account out of the picture, for instance, and you just go and look at what Isaiah says, it might not be all that apparent at first. Because there's certainly something with reference to this virgin-conceived child that has reference to Ahaz, his times, his concerns, his fears, and God's word to him that was given to him through Isaiah's ministry as he went out and addressed him. And that's true. You can't just say it's something that refers to time in the future. It is something that has to do with time very near in proximity to Ahaz, his concerns, and his life. But you know, 
you can't have it exhaust. That does not exhaust the meaning of the passage, as we're going to see. There's more that clearly indicates there's something else behind this. There's a bigger picture. There's a wider picture. And as you begin to read on into chapter 8 and 9, and the child that's born, and the son that's given, and the government's upon his shoulders, and the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of his father David, he will reign. The Lord will perform this. You begin to read what is expected of him. And then in chapter 11, of the root out of, out of um, the dry ground, I'm sorry, that's chapter 53, but the root of Jesse that will come forth and it will bring forth a king who will reign in the power of the Spirit and wisdom and in righteousness and all of the other qualities that will characterize his reign. You see, a picture is given of the coming of the child, the coming of the king, the coming of Emmanuel, what he will come to do. And you realize that none of this was ever fully fulfilled at all in the kings of Judah in the earthly kings of, of David's line it's a heaven sent king it's something that happens distant from Isaiah's time Ahaz's time and by the spirit of prophecy we hear God's voice telling us of the way in which God's will and plan and purposes will be ultimately fulfilled and that fulfillment does come in the person of of Jesus, but more about that later. What I want to do this morning is introduce you to the seventh chapter, to introduce you to the concern that is here at the outset. I want to introduce you to the concern, but before that, the characters. We need to have a cast of characters. We need to understand who are these people that we read about in chapter 7, then the concern, and then the challenge. Those are the three things I want to set before you this morning. First of all, the cast of characters. You ever been in the ballpark and you ever hear the scorecard sellers say, Can't tell the players without a scorecard. Actually, that's the old days. Today, they now have not only a number on their back, they have their names on their back, so you can tell the players, even if you don't have a scorecard. But the idea is, if you don't know the players, you're not really going to make a whole lot of sense of the ball game, or if you look at a, a, a performance in the theater, if without the, the, the book that uh, gives you something of an insight of what the play is all about, you're probably going to be confused. Here we need to know something about the players, something about the cast. There's a whole bunch of them that come before our attention. First of all, there's the figure of Ahaz. Ahaz is said to be the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Remember, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, back in chapter 6, that Isaiah was called into the work of being a prophet. Now, God appeared to him in that temple vision in chapter 6. Now, Ahaz died in the year that Isaiah was called. Another king, Jotham. It's hard to know exactly how Jotham ruled, because Jotham ruled for a time along with his father. Remember, his father Uzziah went into the temple and sought to offer worship to God, and the priest confronted him and said, It's not lawful for you, the king, to be doing this. Only the priests. And Isaiah put his hand out to do the work of offering up sacrifice on the altar of God, or the altar of incense. And God turned his hand leprous. 
Remember, he became a leper from that point, and he wasn't able to exercise the public function of the, of, of the work of the kingship. And so the, uh, Jotham, his son, became kind of a co-regent with him. So just how long Jotham's co-regency existed and just how much it, uh, it, co- it coincided with, uh, with the reign of Uzziah, it's hard to know. But there is now another king that's come upon the scene. And that's the figure of Ahaz. And when you think of Ahaz, you, you must think of a very, very bad king. You must think of a king whose characteristics were evil beyond which, up to this point, the kingdom of Judah had not seen anything like it. Something of his history is told to us in chapter 16 of the book of 1 Kings. It's also told to us in chapter 28 of the book of as they say, First Kings, Second Kings, Second Kings, sixteen, and then Second Chronicles, chapter twenty-eight. Those are the two Old Testament portions in which the story of Ahaz is told to us. And there are things in the Chronicles narrative that are told to us that are not found in the King's narrative. And I just want to turn you there in chapter twenty-eight of the book of Second Chronicles. And I want to get a read about this man Ahaz, what he was all about. We read that Ahaz in chapter one, uh, chapter twenty-eight of Second Chronicles, and verse one. We read that Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's guys like uh, Ahab. That's uh, you know idolatrous kings of the north now in the south an idolatrous king had come to the throne he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel he even made metal images for the Baals and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering the valley of the son of Hinnom as I understand it was the garbage place where they burnt garbage uh, in the city of Jerusalem. It was uh, outside the city. And now this man burnt not just the garbage of the city, his own children. Own children in acts of idolatrous worship. These are the abominations of the nations that Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And therefore, therefore, It's in the light of these abominations committed by Ahaz. Therefore, God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, Syria, who defeated him and took a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. Now, we don't read all about that. We read that there was a limit to what this king of Syria did. But nonetheless, it was as a result, whatever he did was as a result of Ahaz's idolatry, these abominable practices that he had committed. And then after that whole thing got resolved, we read that at that time, Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. In the midst of the crisis, in the midst of the concern for which Isaiah was sent by God to address him, calling him to trust in his God, he would not. He would not. God said, ask a sign. And he refused. Because his whole intention was never to go to God for the answers. Never to rely upon the Lord for his help. His intention was to find a greater king than the Assyrian king or the king of the northern tribes of Israel. 
He was going to go to the king of Assyria and Nineveh. And we read about him going there and coming back with a plan for an altar that was a mimicking of the altar in the temple in Nineveh. And he brought it back and he replaced the altar of burnt offering with a pagan altar. That's what he did. A wicked man from beginning to last reigning in practices of the kings of the north totally given himself over to foreign gods, given himself over to idolatrous practices. That's who Ahaz, the son of Jotham, is. You would think God would just simply forget him or reject him or do nothing in any way to help him in the midst of this crisis in which he's filled with fear. We read that the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This man was in fear of his throne, in fear of the welfare of his kingdom. And God sends a prophet to him nonetheless. Oh, the grace of God's amazing, isn't it? That God would have mercy upon a man like Ahaz, offer him his grace, give him his promises, after the abominable, horrific things this man had done. That's the first member of the cast, Ahaz, the king of Judah. Secondly, there's Rezin. He's the king of Syria. Syria was to the north, a little bit further north than the northern tribes of Israel. Now we're in pagan territory. Now we're in the territory of the worship of the Baals. That's where Jezebel came from, the region to the north in Syria. That's where foreign gods had come to enter into the land of Israel. And so Rezin, who's the king of Syria, he gets together with Pekah, who's said to be the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom. Remember, they divided after the reign of David and Solomon. Because of Solomon's idolatries, God said, I'm going to take ten tribes away from you. And it was in the days of his son Rehoboam that Rehoboam refused to listen to the counsel of the wise old elder people the elder men who had advised his father Solomon, when the people said, lighten up on the taxes, will you? Lighten up on the oppression, will you? You're just doing too much, and it's not in the interest of the welfare of the people. And he refused to listen, listening to the counsel of the young fools that he surrounded himself with. And so as a result of that, God took the ten tribes away from from um, from. David, from the Davidic king, and uh, another kingdom entered with Jeroboam and his successors in the north. And so David's kingdom was in the south. It was in the kingdom of Judah. And there was this adversary kingdom to the north, the northern tribes that had broken away from David. Now they had entered into this alliance. They came up to Jerusalem. They looked to wage war against it, but were told they could not mount an attack against it. And then when the house of David was told that Syria was in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest before the wind. Now we have another figure that comes upon the scene, and that, of course, is the prophet Isaiah. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz. And where you to go is interesting because he tells him to go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. You read about that location in another time with another king and with another threat that comes against Judah. 
That's in chapter 36 of this very prophecy of Isaiah. And that's the place where Sennacherib's army poised itself against Jerusalem when later on they came to attack it, the Assyrians now. The very people for whom Ahaz is looking to be his help, to be his salvation, later on comes against Jerusalem and is about poised to effect its destruction. But you see, there was another king on the throne of Judah. It wasn't a wicked king like Ahaz. It was believing King Hezekiah. And believing King Hezekiah came to be the fulfillment of what Ahaz should have been. God says, in trusting, you will stand. Stand firm in your faith and you will stand. Ahaz refused to stand firm in his faith. Hezekiah stood firm in his faith. He took the letter of the Rabshakeh, brought it up to the temple of God, spread it before him, pleaded for God's help, and God destroyed the armies of the, of the Assyrians. And an, an amazing evidence of God's faithfulness to his people. God was to be the salvation of his people. God was to be the protector of his people. The king, if he was to be a true Davidic king, a true son of David, a king after God's own heart, a king with the wisdom of Solomon, was to be a king who would stand firm in faith, trusting that the Lord would protect, the Lord would preserve, the Lord would establish his people and keep it from harm. Isaiah is the person who goes to both kings. It's a tale of two kings. An unbelieving king and a believing king. And this is really a whole section of scripture that's concerned to teach us the importance of faith. The importance of trusting God. Leaning upon the Lord our God. Not leaning upon human nations. Nations who could have a great military or great financial power, or great commercial powers, they're not to be our help and our, our ultimate trust. It's in the living God who's to be our helper, our trust. Not to trust in princes, not to look for help in men, but for help in the Lord our God. And that's the whole section of this portion of Isaiah that's affirming that lesson again and again and again. Only believe, only believe, only trust, and continue in that trust. But along with Isaiah, there's another figure that comes to our attention. And that's Isaiah's son. This fellow by the name of Shear Jashub. And I mentioned before in the reading, there's another son of Isaiah who's mentioned in chapter 8 and verse 1. And that son is called Meir Shalil Hashbaz. You see it in verse 3. I went to the prophetess. She conceived, bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meir Shelel Hashbaz. This is, is not Emmanuel. And the prophetess is not the virgin. This is Isaiah's wife, the prophetess, who conceives this child, Meir Shalel Hashbaz. And this is a, a word or a name that means something like the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. In other words, there's war coming, there's destruction coming. The wealth of the nation is going to be taken away when the Assyrians come and take the northern kingdom into captivity. They will plunder them. And yet there is also this other son. And his name is Shear Jashub. And that means a remnant shall return. Now, in one sense, a remnant shall return offers hope. There's a returning remnant, but there's also a remnant that's needed because, hey, the captivity is coming. 
Exile's coming. The people are going to be taken away by these other empires. And so even in the name of Isaiah's sons, there's something of the peril that does still stand before the nation. And so it's in the midst of this peril that you see in the persons of Rezin and Pekah, that you see in terms of the names of Isaiah's sons, you have a word of promise that's given to Ahaz as Isaiah is sent to him, sent out to meet him. Likely he's at the highway to the washer's field inspecting the reservoir, making sure the water supply of the city remains intact. And so he's busy about many things. What can I do to fend off these adversaries? What can I do to protect the city? What can I do to make sure that we are prepared for this attack that is still to come? And Isaiah's words are, calm down. Basically, calm down. You're all excited about many things. Kind of like Martha and Mary, in a sense. Martha, Martha, you're coming about by many things. Mary's chosen the better part that won't be taken away from her, quietly sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in the things that he had said. There's a sense in which, there, not a quietism in the book of Isaiah, but yet a confidence and a trust in the promises of God that again and again is set before us. It's in quietness and in trust that we will be saved, that we will know the deliverance of God. It's like the people of Israel taken out of captivity to the Egyptians that are led out into the wilderness and the chariots of Pharaoh are coming to destroy them. And God and says through Moses, stand still and see the salvation of God. You're not the ones who bring the triumph about. You're not the ones that bring the victory about. This is God's victory. He achieves it. He works it. You live in the light of it. We don't fight for the victories, thinking we're going to get the victory in some way of our own efforts, achieving something or another. We have the victory in Christ. We fight from that victory and are more than conquerors now. And we'll be overcomers through our faith. Be, care, be careful. <laughs> yes, be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands of the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. God's going to take care of these people. <laughs> Now, uh, grant you, he had a lot to be concerned about as a king. Uh, again, the Chronicles passage tells us 200,000 people were taken away into captivity. But he had to come to realize that happened because of his own wicked, abominable deeds. If there was any kind of self-awareness, any kind of self-reflection, Ahaz would have said, the problem is not the Syrians. The problem is not the northern tribes. The problem is an unfaithful king. And it's in the light of Ahaz being an unfaithful Davidic king that God's address is not just Ahaz. It's interesting, twice in this passage, reference is made to the house of David. Verse 2, it says, When the house of David was told... When the house of David 
was told. Verse 13, he said to Ahaz, Hear then, O house of David. Why do I point it out? House of David, house of David. These are the only places in Isaiah that house of David is used. Now, there is a reference to the keys of the house of David dealing with the steward that God took down in chapter 22, I think it is, something like that. It may be earlier. But there was that unfaithful steward that was taken out of his stewardship and a stewardship was given to another. And so there was the keys to the house of David. That's actually talking about the entryways in and out of David's palace. So that's the literal uh, keys to the house of David. But this is a figurative house of David. Remember, David had said to Nathan it was his desire to build a house for God. He's dwelling in a house of cedar, and God's dwelling in a tent. I'm going to build him a house. And at first, Nathan tells him, yeah, go ahead, do what's in your heart. And then God says, no, 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 no. You go back to him and tell him, you're not building a house for me. I'm building a house for you. I'm building a house for you. God turns the tables around and says, no, no, I'm the one that's in the business of house building. And the house that David, that David was promised, that God promised to David, was a succession of Davidic kings that would reign. We think of the house of Windsor, for instance. It's the royal dynasty. It's a succession of royal kings that would come from the house of David or the house, the house of Windsor or the, many of the houses, the house of Tudor, I'm trying to think of the Stuarts as another family of the, at least the English kings, and they were called houses. David was to have a lineal descent, and a lineal descent that would never end, because his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. And so the reference to house of David is a reference to the promise of an eternal kingdom. You're in the place in which if... If, the, if Rezin and Pekah had gotten their way, there would have been no Davidic king in all the world. Would have supplanted him by this nothing of a person called Tabiel. I forgot what his name meant, but it's not flattering. It's not a flattering name. He's a nothing. He's a nobody. We don't even know who he is. The only time he's mentioned in scripture. But this guy is not going to supplant the promise to David. It's not going to supplant the promise of an everlasting kingdom that God himself will establish. As the establishment of this everlasting kingdom, or really this at the heart of the concern. Of course, Ahaz is concerned about himself. He's concerned about his own power. But God addresses the dynasty. And God addresses the fact that he is the one who will bring security to the kingdom he promised to David. It's not in the hands of David's successor. It's in the hands of the God who made the promise. God is going to make the promise good. And so you see, you're, you're moving in an orbit that's far greater than just this one king at this one time. I think a lot of people get confused along these lines because they read language that follows that seems to indicate that God's given a promise of his security with reference to his own fears of the Syrians and of the Ephraimites. Now God addresses that. But he addresses it in such a way that there is a more distant promise. There's a more distant fulfillment. I see the Bible doing that all the time. Now these are things that are future to the time of Ahaz, the time of... of um, Isaiah 
But the question is, is it near future or distant future? I came up with a theory one time. It's there's near future, there's distant future, and there's mid there's mid future. <laughs> because I see things that are promised that have to do with the very lifetime of Isaiah, and then things that have to do with the Babylonians and their rule in the Persians that come later, and Isaiah is no longer around during that time. And there's things that happen 700 years later at the coming of Jesus. So I think you have all those levels of prophet, prophetic word that's given. And there's certainly everything that lends itself to belief that there is that bigger picture. There is not just the immediate future. There is that long distance future. That future that has to do with the fulfillment of God's own promise to David to have a king that will reign upon his throne. So that's the great concern of the passage. We've seen the cast. We've seen the characters. We've seen their roles that they play. We've seen the concern, the eternal perpetuation of the kingdom of the living God promised in the Davidic covenant that there will be a Davidic king. And we'll say more about how that gets fulfilled in coming weeks as we get to verse 14. But now the challenge, the challenge in the midst of it all, is again, it's a challenge to faith, to firmness in faith. And the picture of faith that's used in this passage is the picture of leaning on something. I'm standing here this morning kind of leaning on this pulpit. Thankfully, it's strong enough not to give way, because if it did, there goes my Bible, there goes the computer, there goes Zoom, there goes a lot of things. If it doesn't hold, it has to hold. And I have at least enough faith in John Lazarder's ability to make pulpits, because he's made them for many churches that I know about. I've been in some of those pulpits, that he does pretty good craft uh, craftsmanship, does good handiwork. So the pulpit is largely going to remain firm and, and solid. But you see, when we live our lives in this world, we have to make certain there's something solid underneath us. There's something that's going to hold. That everything's not going to simply give way. That David's kingdom will not give way. That God's promise will not give way. There's things that we can bank upon. There's things we can live in the light of the certainty of it. That there are things in which security is to be found. Even in the midst of situations that seem ever so chaotic. As an alliance of foreign nations looking to destroy you. God comes into the midst of all of that. And says, Ahaz the problem is not that I've been unfaithful. The the problem is you've been unbelieving. You've been wicked. You've been rebellious. You've not been the kind of Davidic king that's after the heart of your father who is after my own heart. Or even after Solomon's wisdom. You've been just like the kings of Israel. And the great concern Ahaz is that you firmly put your confidence in me. You put the full reliance of your throne, the full reliance of your future, the full reliance of your happiness and well-being in me and in my promises. That's not much different than what you and I are called to. 
Again, we live in a world that left to itself is filled with tremendous uncertainty. We've seen chaos surround us in many ways. Again, we don't have the sort of problems that a nation like the Ukraine has. We know the sort of problems like the nations that are in the Horn of Africa where famine just has devastated those countries. But we've had our own insecurities. We've had our own uh, threats. We've had attacks upon our nation with planes being flown into buildings. We've had attacks upon our nation and terrorist activities. We've had attacks on our nation, nation internally, externally. This is a nation that's gone through not only a revolution, but a civil war. We still have internal strife. We still have racial divisions, divisions along many, many lines. And things in our own nation has a certain measure of uncertainty. A lot of times, political figures, they, 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 they look to seize upon our uncertainties and say, you know, vote for me, I'll make you certain. Put your hope in me, your confidence in me, your trust in me. And sometimes Christians go along with that whole hog. And we become devotees of political cults. We become devotees of getting uh, of finding Jesus upon the bandwagon of some political party. And uh, Christian leftists and Christian rightists both do the same thing. It's not, I'm not looking to key upon any, anybody. But to say this is what we think that uh, our, our, our salvation will come from. Some political answer. We think in terms of some economic solution. That if you're a Christian you hold to a certain view of economics. That if you don't, you're not unfaithful. You can't be a Christian and hold to some other form of economics. Well, I tell you, the economics of the Bible, a lot of people who think they have the right view of Christian economics, they would not like. They would not like God telling them that the corners of your field don't belong to you. God says it belongs to the poor. Now, people that make so much of property rights would say, what is God doing telling us that? That the stuff that's laying on the ground don't belong to you. It belongs to the poor. And it belongs to the orphans. And it belongs to the widows. And it belongs to the immigrants. The aliens or the strangers they're called. We tie ourselves to some human system. We tie ourselves to some human notion of where genuine prosperity will lead. Well, I tell you, no human system of economics is going to succeed if the blessing of God is not with it. And our confidence should not be in, again, human systems of thought. It should be in the living God. He is our confidence. He is our helper. He is our trust. God's word to us is exactly what it was to Ahaz. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And we learn anything from Isaiah's prophecy. We should learn the primacy of faith, the centrality of faith. Apart from faith, everything will fall apart. Apart from faith, there will be no lasting entrance into the kingdom of God's grace and the kingdom of God's glory. It's in faith we stand. May God give us the grace to look to Him as our hope, our trust, our confidence, our security are everything. The kingdom of God is not brought in by human ingenuity, by human initiatives, by human power. It's brought in by the power of the crucified and risen Jesus. What a lead into the Lord's Supper, huh? Absolutely. There's where our confidence is. It's in the one who came from heaven's glory, the one who died for our sins, the one who rose in power, the one who reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one who calls us to bow our knees in allegiance to him. He's worthy. May God give us 
the grace to look to him, to rejoice in him, to have all of our hope and confidence securely focused upon the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the unchanging, eternal, omnipotent, all-glorious, all-sufficient King of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word this morning. You've undertaken for us beyond what I could ever have expected. And we're thankful, Lord, that we could consider these things and pray you would be pleased to draw near with your blessing and your help. We thank you for the opportunity to commune with one another around the supper of remembrance, to feed upon the realities of a Savior crucified for our sins, and to remember him who loved us and who gave himself for us. Draw near with your presence and blessing. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.